you're going to build a skyscraper, you've got to have a really sturdy foundation. And the Christian movement became a skyscraper in the Roman world. And the reason why is not because it was accommodating to Rome to gain adherence and popularity. It was because it was building disciples, a critical mass of them, so it can handle the growth. Welcome to Where We Belong, a podcast where we dive into questions surrounding what it means to belong to a community of faith, how we do that well, and why it often feels so hard. I'm Lauren from Whitworth's Office of Church Engagement, and I'm excited to walk with you as we puzzle through big questions that a lot of us are asking about the church, about culture, and about our place in the body of Christ. So if you are a church leader, a church skeptic, an all-in church member, or fall somewhere in between, I invite you to join us in these conversations as we wrestle with the truth that, whether we like it or not, we are claimed by the community of faith, and it's where we belong. This is one great episode. Some of you, I'm sure, have heard of our guest today, Dr. Jerry Sitzer. If you haven't, you are in for a real treat. He is a church historian. He specializes in Christian spirituality and religion in American public life. I know him best as my former professor. He taught here at Whitworth for many, many years. He also is one of my colleagues right now in Whitworth's Office of Church Engagement, where he cultivates relationships with pastors. He works on training material for churches. He's also an author. He's written a lot of books, including A Grace Disguise and his most recent book, Resilient Faith. Lots of impressive things about Jerry. Um, he also is a great person. He officiated my wedding. <laughs> uh, lots of history between Jerry and I and lots of history to be discussed on this episode. We talk about belonging to the church throughout history and especially how that has shifted into how we conceive of belonging in the church today. I found this so interesting and insightful, so I hope you enjoy. Hi, Jerry. Thanks for joining me today. Lovely to be here on oh, such a beautiful day. Absolutely. Well, tell me about your experience in the church, your story with the church. Where does that begin for you? Uh, I grew up in the church, um, a kind of a, a downtown mainline church in the peak period of of uh, religious membership and attendance in American mm -hmm. history, the 50s and 60s. Um, this was the peak period of mainline um, a size and influence. Uh, most other groups appeared marginal, even though they even though they weren't. And uh, this was um, th this all changed very dramatically in the late '60s, '60s and '70s, uh, with civil rights in Vietnam, and then the whole religious scene okay. sort of blew yeah. up. I dropped out from about the ages of 13 to 20. And then I had a kind of dramatic evangelical conversion experience that mm. sent me back into the church. And I kept my mainline roots, but obviously my world expanded dramatically after my conversion, going to Fuller Seminary and uh, getting to know a lot of other church traditions and then eventually becoming a church uh, historian myself. I look back on that experience now, both fondly and alarmingly fondly, because I met some good people. Uh, but alarmingly, I mean, I remember robes with all the choir members, the okay. women wore hats, men wore three-piece suits and, <laughs> and boutonnieres every Sunday as ushers. It really was a, a, a lot of cultural Christianity that okay. became exposed later on and didn't have staying power. Mm -hmm 
starting in the early 1970s, the mainline church just literally collapsed right. in size. I mean, Presbyterians and Methodists and Episcopalians right. and Congregationalists, all of those traditions declined precipitously. And I think to some degree they were exposed for a cultural Christianity. Not that things are, have improved now, as we've yeah. just discovered with the Southern Baptists, but uh, some new some new forms of Christianity emerged right, right during that period, the megachurch being one of them. I think that's going to be more transitional than permanent. And I think we're going to see a lot of new experiments in the next 20 years as we adjust to our post-Christendom setting. I'll just add now two other things have really shaped my experience at the church. First, I'm a church historian. Yes. So I feel like I belong to 2,000 years uh, of church. Well, does I was going to ask you about that as well. Does becoming a church historian, I imagine there are times where that feels deeply hopeful for you, but also times where you see the ugliness in a pretty stark way like what what drew you to that and and tell me more oh, just curiosity i think life experience and uh and things like that I, I, and you're right about it being both uh terrifying and hopeful you see the ugly side of the christian story say the religious wars at the end of the reformation uh the treatment of jews yeah uh, the constant infighting and competition. I mean, there are lots of ugly chapters in the history of Christianity, as you well know. I think a lot of it is a result of Christendom and the mentality that we've developed uh, you know, in Christendom. Uh, but also a lot of hopeful signs. There have been some really creative renewal movements that mm. keep popping up. Early monasticism, the Franciscan and Dominican, especially third order movements. Uh, the Wesleyan movement I'm fascinated by, and lots of other little pockets here and there of renewal that remind us uh, God is continuing to work and right. renew his church right. and expand its uh, impact in the world. And there have always been in the history of Christianity faithful witnesses, often mm -hmm. that are harder to find because they're not necessarily in the mainstream. Last thing I'll say is I, over the years, I've just gotten to know so many pastors and so yes, many churches. I visited so many visited, churches. Yeah. And so I get, I, I have a feeling of just belonging to the larger church community, both historically mm -hmm. and translocally now. And that has given me, for the most part, a, a very meaningful life story of human connection. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And talk about belonging. I would say your experience of feeling deeply connected to the church throughout history, through your discipline, through your experience, offers a level of connection and sense of belonging to you in the church that maybe is for, I mean, I think especially of a lot of my peers yeah. who maybe attend church every once in a while or used to attend, there's, there's not that same sense of not only do I belong to this community or this congregation, if I even belong to something to like them, that, right. but I belong to something that spans such great periods of history, and I'm a part of that. Yeah, as Joe Whitworth said, he's a good a good friend, a, a local church pastor, the only real mega church in town. He uh, he he said to me when I was growing up and went to a Bible school and 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 belonged to my own particular denomination. Um, there was the Apostolic Age, there was Wesley, and there was the Pentecostal movement. That was it. When he went to Bible school, he never took a course in church history. That's irrelevant. You just right, go back to the right. New Testament and that becomes your guide. 
And he discovered church history much, much later on, mm -hmm. largely through our master's program and said, it opened up a world to me I didn't know existed at all and realized they're, they're my brothers and sisters too. There are a lot of things that have happened in history that have been shameful, but a lot of things that are really, really helpful and meaningful. Yeah. And uh, I was just with a, a, man, a church a pastor who serves in Manhattan, a successful church planner. And he said, Water from a Deep Well, my book on the history of Christianity, he called it his gateway drug mm -hmm. into a world he didn't know existed. So I do have that advantage, Lauren, of studying what most people haven't. Most people come from a tradition where it's early Christianity and medieval Catholicism, or early Christianity in the Reformation, yeah. or early Christianity in the Wesleyan movement. And outside of that, there's really nothing else of value. Yes, yes. And there is a lot of value in every one of those periods if we, mm -hmm. if we uh, study it and read some of the primary sources. As I like to say, wise Christians are good scavengers. Mm, I've heard you say that before. Yeah. That's a Jerryism. Well, I wonder what we what you think we lose by not being connected to the early church. You say, yes, there's, there's people to learn from. There's, there's meaningful things all throughout. But in terms of, I mean, I just think of what a loss, not feeling like you belong to something bigger than yourself, yeah, bigger right. than your particular time in history, especially when, I mean, I think right now I had a conversation with some students a little while ago and they were emphatic about saying the world is the worst that it's ever been right now, you know? Right. Well, and I think, yes, it's important to call out that there yeah. are terrible things happening right now, but it just seems to me, especially when you think about the church, there's the tendency right now to say the same thing. Yeah. Um, being a Christian in today's society is the hardest or the worst or yeah. uh, in, in my perspective, we lose a sense of, uh, okay, we're located in a bigger story here. There's oh, people to learn from. There's yeah. movements to learn from. Mm -hmm. We're just one piece of the puzzle here. I, I don't want to shame people for saying it's the worst that it's ever been. Uh, it's not a matter of whether it's better, whether it's worse. There have been other periods of history that were bleak. Yeah. I mean, that's really the point. And then you look back and realize there have been lots of experiences and periods of pretty profound suffering in the life of the people of God. Uh, there have also been a lot of bright spots, uh, bright spots that have emerged right during that period. Mm. I mean, as you know, I've talked about uh, the worst year in world history. There's a kind of this humorous consensus among historians. It was in the year 536, and no one's ever heard of that before. Uh, but it was uh, right during the tribal invasions of Rome, and then in 536, uh, there was a series of massive volcanic eruptions in Iceland. A comet struck Australia. It created a cloud of ash that circled the globe for 18 months, leading to what they call the year of darkness. And then four years later, the great Justinian plague that might have taken as many as 25 million people in the Middle East and Europe. I mean, my gosh, you can't imagine something worse than that. And right during that period of time, Benedict of Nursia was experimenting with a new form of community life, wrote the rule of St. Benedict that became the prevailing method of monastic living for the next thousand years. And that movement brought renewal to the church and picked Europe, uh, Western civilization up and on its back and carried it for 600 years. Mm. Right then and there. And if we had been living at that time, we wouldn't have seen it.
It was mm-hmm. too new, too too fresh. Yeah, we and say too small. Sure. But there was a little sprout coming up mm-hmm. after a massive forest fire and new life emerged. That's happened a lot in the history of Christianity. Mm-hmm. It's a good reminder to us, stay faithful, look for signs yeah, of growth. We belong to a community of believers as well. I mean, yeah, we do. The sort of lack mm-hmm. of feeling isolated. Yeah, and, and that's true now or... with global Christianity. Yeah. All kinds of little experiments and new movements and things that uh, bring hope to us. Yeah, even though we may be experiencing some uh, kind of negative examples of church life right. in, in the West. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, let's do some more of that historical kind of deep dive when we're thinking about belonging in the church. Maybe let's start with the early church. Yeah. What did belonging to the church look like at that point? Well, obviously, it's a very different set of circumstances. Uh, first, the church is just getting started, so it's really small. Mm-hmm. And it had to address some problems right from the get-go. Is it going to remain a kind of sect within Judaism? Or is it going to be able to expand beyond that fairly small world to the bigger Roman world? And that took a while to sort out. Uh, the Council of Jerusalem, uh, as told in Acts 15, is a good example of that. But it took a while for that to get worked out. Then it began to break into different cultural and language groups. And as early as that, Christianity began to become a kind of world religion. And that was a decision made very early in the history of Christianity. So they start to operate in Greek and Latin and Syriac, and pretty soon it's Coptic and and uh, and Goth, and then it just keeps multiplying what languages as it continues to grow mm-hmm. both to the east and to the west around the Mediterranean world and down the Nile River. So one difference was it was small and had to figure those things out. Are we going to be a sector? Are we going to grow beyond that? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's interesting, though. They decided to carry their Jewish roots with them by holding on to the Old Testament, because apart from the old, what we call the Old Testament story, mm-hmm. you can't make sense of Jesus. He's the fulfillment of that story. So that they maintain very robustly and deliberately, and we're, uh, we should be uh, grateful for that. Uh, another uh, difference is that they were uh, outsiders. Right. Um, Rome wanted to absorb them as Rome absorbed everything. And yeah. They refused to be absorbed by Rome. And yet at the same time, they didn't want to remain as isolated from the culture as the Jews. Mm. That, that was a very narrow window um, to look through, not accommodating, not isolating, figure out how to be something new. And they develop kind of what I call the third way, a way of immersing themselves in the culture without being absorbed by the culture. And with lots of fits and starts and failures, they figured out how to maintain that unusual identity for a long period of time. Uh, that's very impressive to me, Lauren, how a movement could sustain that kind of unusual identity in that cultural setting for 270 yes. years. Now, obviously, not every church did that, not every pastor did that, but on the whole, that was their unusual identity that yeah. they shaped and cared for and curated for a long, a long uh, period of time. Well, what would that have looked like on a kind of a more individual level? So for someone at the time who had then maybe been introduced to Christianity or wanted to follow the Jesus way, I don't know if we were quite using the word church yet, but what would that have looked like, that process of 
than becoming a part of the church and belonging to the church in those early days? Well, uh, a couple of things. Uh, early on, uh, the, the audience that uh, Christians most effectively reached were Jews. So they carried with them a set of categories that made it, I don't want to say easier to convert to Christianity, but the transition was easier once they decided to follow Jesus because they carried mm -hmm. their knowledge of the what we now call the Old Testament or Jewish story with them into Christianity. And that provided categories. I mean, they knew about Adam and Eve. They knew about creation, fall, yeah, redemption. Some of the knowledge was already Right. There. And the background and so on. When you start reaching the Greco-Roman world, uh, people who follow traditional religion, they didn't have the story. They didn't have any of the categories. Right. That was an enormous challenge. I mean, it's a difference between learning a dialect within your own language group or maybe uh -huh. one that shares things in common like romance languages. But what if you're moving from English to Chinese or English to Arabic? Right. Everything changes. And that's what the early Christian movement had to face when they started reaching people that uh, were three or four degrees removed yes. from Christianity rather than one or two degrees removed. In our setting, it would be like reaching a lapsed Methodist or a lapsed Presbyterian. You know, they still have the categories. They still have some uh -huh. memory of Sunday school. They still know something about Jesus. But what happens when you meet populations where they know nothing at all? No conception. And no, and no category. So in the case of Roman religion, it was very transactional. You didn't have a personal relationship with a god. And uh -huh. uh, you, you'd go to feasts and festivals to kind of negotiate things that you wanted from the gods, and then you would appease them. Uh, religion in ancient Rome was not the, um, not the source of morality. Philosophers were. I mean, it's so different. So the early Christian movement had to figure out how to develop a long on-ramp. I mean, otherwise you'd, you'd convert people to Jesus and they would have no idea what that meant. Yes. You'd baptize them and they wouldn't have any comprehension of the significance of that. So over time, they developed what we know as the catechumenate. It was a two to three year training process that yeah. they had everybody go through in order to create a culture that was more saturated with a Christian worldview and Christian practices. So it's mm -hmm. not it's not our conception of the catechism. It was a training program. And then at the end of that, they'd go through the rites of initiation, baptism, confirmation, Eucharist, and become kind of full-fledged church members. And I'll tell you, Lauren, they had to do something like that. It would have been impossible for them to survive more yeah. than one, trans uh, one generation if they had not created that long on ramp. But note, it's not just about knowledge. Now they learned about the Christian story, Christian doctrine, Christian morality, but they were mentored. They mm. were taught the way to okay. life as well yes. as the way of life. Mm. So in early Christian documents, knowing, following, and trusting Jesus and following the way of Jesus were part of a seamless whole. You couldn't really have one without the mm -hmm. other. Yeah. Anyway, they developed that early on as a way of creating an increasingly sturdy foundation as the church grew so that, that it could handle the growth without compromise or without collapse. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, if you're going to build a building that's two stories high, you don't have to have a very big foundation. But if you're going to build a skyscraper, 
you've got to have a really sturdy foundation. And the Christian movement became a skyscraper in the Roman world. And the reason why is not because it was accommodating to Rome to gain adherence and popularity. It was because it was building disciples, Mm -hmm. a critical mass of them. So it can handle the growth. Yes. So tell me if you'd agree. It sounds like the church at this time had on one hand, a high barrier of entry because it was two to three years that you had to commit before you were really a part of it. But at the same time, a low barrier to entry in that there wasn't much expected of you and there were people to kind of help you along the way. Absolutely. I like to put it this way. Uh, It was a really big front door and a really small back door. Really small back door. Instead of in many churches in our setting, it's a really small front door. you got to look like me and act like me, but a really big back door, you have a lot of people you leaving. You just leave, yes. So, I, I mean, if you if you would um, imagine uh, a Christian family living in Ephesus, and it's a very big urban center, a center back, back then, 250,000 people in not many square miles, and you're a, a church member, you're really committed to a local fellowship, you're selling goods at a marketplace every day, you're quality of life is pretty different and observably so. Uh, you have a husband and wife working together. He's really respectful to her. He's married to one woman. He doesn't sleep with concubines. Mm-hmm. He's got three daughters and he actually loves them all and is glad he's got them instead of sons. So it, it, you're you're coming by that uh, little stall in the marketplace uh, every day and you notice this and you fall into conversations and pretty soon that Christian will invite you uh, to, uh, to their home, uh, that couple, that family for a dinner. And there you go. See, mm. uh, increasing interest uh, is generated. You notice how they pray. You notice there are no uh, idols in their homes. They don't okay. go to the temple. You see what I mean? They're, yes. they're observing a very different kind of behavior, but they're comfortable associating with that in, in that world place. Yes. They're not, um, they're not offended. They, they're not weird looking. They speak the same language. They wear the same mm-hmm. clothes. They eat the same diet, but they're different all the same. Mm-hmm. And eventually you get interested in Jesus. They're, they're God. You learn enough. You decide to enroll in their training program and you're off and running. Now that happened. It wasn't successful all the time that it happened. It, it was successful enough of the time to grow the church over 270 years very successfully from about 5,000 in the year 40 to 5 million on the eve of the last great persecution in uh, the history of Christianity. Wow. So at this time, because of the the differences, especially between Roman society and being in the church, like being in the church, belonging to the church, becoming, following the Jesus way was kind of a, was a big deal, was a significant shift. Very significant But then as we move forward in history, especially as we approach times like Christendom and into today, that changes, right? Can you talk about that? It does change. Well, I mean, I I have a a generous view of Constantine, the first Christian emperor. I mean, he's just a good good politician and he realizes he needs Christianity on his side to be able to succeed as an emperor. And uh, and he's successful in doing that. I mean, what president in the United States has not done that with at least right. some religious group? Uh-huh. Um, I mean, Donald Trump has been a, a genius at doing that. Uh, if there if the fault lays anywhere, it's not with Constantine; it's with the bishops, who realize all of a sudden they have the favor of the emperor, 
All you have to do is read uh, Eusebius, who wrote the first history of Christianity. And he knew Constantine, not very well, but he did know him. And he's euphoric with Constantine's favor. And uh, the way he provides all of a sudden an open space for Christians. But his reading of Constantine, we're still living with today. This sort of euphoric privilege that we're given by people mm -hmm. who show some degree of favor, but they demand too much from us. And you have a cozy relationship that develops between pastors and president or emperor. Uh -huh. and uh, and church and state. And so what it did is that it grew the church fast in the fourth century, but the quality of church life began to decline. You notice that because later fourth century bishops, people like John Chrysostom or Basil of Caesarea or Athanasius or Ambrose are constantly complaining about it in their sermons. I mean, they'll just call the it out right in the pulpit. <laughs> You guys are coming to find a nice Christian wife, but you're not committed to being disciples. You're looking to cut business deals at church, but we see no evidence of you becoming serious followers of Jesus. So they're yes. sniffing the air and realizing this success has with it dangers. Yes. And we're living in that world even to this day. Uh, so to use your door analogy... The front door is very wide because, you know, Christianity is the religion of the day and everyone's Christian and everyone's here. But the back door is sort of irrelevant because you're you're just in the room. Nobody's you're, leaving. You're in the room. No one's leaving. It doesn't really matter as much what uh -huh. you believe and how you live because being Christian and being Roman over time, it takes a while. It takes a, a good hundred years. Over time, being Christian and being Roman become virtually indistinguishable. Mm. And that's true today, being Western and being Christian. Yes. Yes. Well, that actually is changing, and we're having a hard time adjusting to that change. But for hundreds of years, being Western and being Christian were virtually the same thing. You know, we just called Europe Christian, we called America Christian. And because the door was wide, but the room was big and there was no back door, or better put, the back door was small and you had to be clear you wanted to reject Christianity. Right, the easier courage, to just stick the, around. Actually, the courage was, uh, uh, was exhibited on the part of those who said, no, I don't want to be I Christian. I door, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, and that has created a different set of problems for us. Uh, and uh, one of the distinguishing features of, of, of Western Christianity for hundreds and hundreds of years has been one movement after another that's been trying to Christianize Christendom. Yes, I mean, leaders recognize, problem. oh my gosh, everyone's claimed to be Christian and not many people are living that way. What are we going to do? And so they launch new movements by, yeah. I think, the guidance of the Holy Spirit in many ways. They can be oriented toward disip spiritual discipline or toward evangelism or whatever, but they're trying to Christianize mm -hmm. the people within Christendom that show very little evidence they're followers of Jesus. Mm -hmm. I think we're in a different phase now, though. I yeah, think more and more think we're today. feeling like we're in a post-Christendom phase. People in urban settings, people on the coasts, clearly Europe is that way. I was with uh, some pastors last week who are uh -huh. church planners in highly secular urban settings around the world. And two guys from London 
who, by the way, are Church of England pastors, but they're mm -hmm. church planners, very successful in what they're doing. One told me, in fact, I just got an email from him this morning. One told me 0.6% of the population of larger London identifies with the church. 0.6%, not 6%, 0.6%. Now that's that's post-Christian. Absolutely. We in America are more post-Christendom because we still have higher rates of Christian belief okay. and to some degree church attendance, although it's declining. But what's happening in our setting, I think, Lauren, is that because we still claim to be Christian and want to be Christian, we're trying to figure out how to how to accommodate to larger cultural movements uh, that that are appear to be Christian, but are conceding too much ground to the culture. So Christian nationalism would be a good example. Mm -hmm. uh, various social justice movements that don't have a Christ-centered heart mm -hmm. to them and center to them. Prosperity gospel, consumer Christianity, yeah. Yeah. all those kinds of things. We're trying to keep Christianity alive in a setting where we feel its decline and loss of influence but I think we're going about it the wrong way. Mm. We're trying to take shortcuts. We are. Yeah. Well, it just strikes me as so different. I mean, oh, it's easy to sort of idealize potentially points in history where we feel like things were perfect and great, but it, but it is, it strikes me as so different when we think about the early church and how becoming a part of the church meant it, it required something of it you. Did. It was a little more costly. It was. Also a little more rewarding. In our setting, I, I really think it's important for us to try to make a little clear distinction, little clear, uh, between kingdom and country, kingdom and economy, yeah. all the various idolatries and ideologies right now swirling in our cultural setting mm -hmm. uh, that are tempting the church to figure out how to accommodate them so we can keep people coming to our churches and maintaining right. our position of privilege and power in our culture, privilege and power in our culture. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I've gone through um, on a more personal level um, lately uh, when I've thought about my own life, it has become more and more apparent to me on kind of a deeper emotional level. I'm white, I'm male, I'm heterosexual, I'm American, I'm married, I'm older. In the history of Christianity, Lauren, I'm not the norm. Those of us in positions of privilege and power, however great or little it is, we need to recognize Jesus Christ has always been the norm. I'm not. So when Paul says he, uh, Christ came to break down the dividing walls of hostility, those of us who represent kind of the Jews of, of his day, that's the example he used, Jew and Gentile. Well, it's the Jew that realized that dividing wall of hostility, Jesus came to break down, and it was a way of undermining their power in the church. You've got to become like me before you can become Christian. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, I can't do that anymore. I can't say you've got to become white to become Christian. Or you have to become male to become Christian or educated to become Christian. Yeah. I'm not the norm. I'm not the plumb line for the church. Jesus mm -hmm. is the norm. Jesus is the plumb line. Mm 
and all of us need to become like him. And at that point, I have no advantage over anybody else. Mm. No advantage over somebody of a different race or ethnicity, of a different economic level, of a different level of education. All of that flies out the window. It does. Mm-hmm. I want to go back to something you said earlier, this idea of when we think about the church or different sort of ministry uh, fellowship, wanting people to just come in and stay like what there, there's not much expected of you, but we want you in the door, right? Like we're, and we'll accommodate to culture. We'll make it really easy and fun for you yeah, to be we'll here. We'll wave the flag. Gonna, we'll yeah. promise that all your prayers will be answered, whatever that is. Yes. Whatever that is. Is, and that to me is so different than the early church notion of, of it requires a little bit more of you, but the difference would be maybe there's a sense of belonging now. Like I belong to the church because they tell me these things I want to hear or because their sanctuary is super cool and they offer me great coffee or whatever that might be. But it's different than a sense of uh, I belong to something that's very counterculture Real than belonging. the world that I live in. Yeah. yeah so what is what are your thoughts when it comes to today and the church really being and fostering a place of belonging? I mean, we've we've got work to do here, but mm-hmm. what do you think that looks like? Oh, well, so many things. I mean, this is one of the great questions. Um, the The whole history of Christianity changed when the church became over associated with the building. And that was the yes. fourth century. And in the Middle Ages, uh, the church uh, became that vehicle, that ship who would carry you to salvation. And I mean, literally the church building, because that's what the sacraments were administered. Uh, and the yes, sacraments were yes. what got you to into the kingdom. So you would go to that building. In early Christianity, I don't want to idealize kind of the house church. It wasn't really the house church as we understand it today. It was the household church. Very okay. different, because when we think our church, we think small church building you go to. Well, they rented halls, they'd meet outside. I mean, they do, but household church, that means it was smaller scale. It was highly localized. So in a city like Rome, there would be dozens and dozens and dozens of household churches Mm -hmm. where there'd be an extended family kinship network, others who would join that fellowship. And maybe you'd grow to a size of, anywhere from 50 to 100 people, but you couldn't do more than that because they didn't have a big building. Some would rent homes or uh, halls. In some cases, they meet in larger homes of wealthier people and their courtyards and so on. But you had limitations of space. And so you had to multiply yeah, to churches. Okay, yes. But they were all tied together. So I love, I love the two words that were used by uh, early church fathers. When they talked about the church, there was the oikos, the smaller scale household church, and the oikumene, the universal church. Mm -hmm. And they tried to cultivate a sense of belonging to both. Mm -hmm. So you belong to this smaller fellowship of people, like you and I know each other. That would be the one hand, uh, that sense of belonging. uh, And then you would also belong to the universal church. And it's so ironic they use the word oikumene because that's the favorite word Rome liked to use of itself. We were the oikumene, the universal kingdom. And 
this little woman came along yeah. and came along and said, oh, well, uh, no, actually, we're, we're the universal kingdom. But ah. it's a very different kind of kingdom. Yes. And I like, I like trying to cultivate that sense of belonging to both. So in other words, mm. I have my people. You know some of my people. I do. I belong to those people. I've known them for a long time. We do life together. We share life together. We've, in some cases, done each other's spouse's memorial service. We've done each other's weddings. We've helped raise each other's kids. On the one hand, on the other hand, I need to recognize I have more in common with a Christian in Vietnam or Afghanistan or Nigeria than I have with people that live in this country. I belong to the kingdom. Mm. I'm not primarily an American. I'm a Christian. So it's both really small and really big simultaneously, including not just geographically, but through history. My people are Macrina, the the younger, or Melania. My people are Julian of Norwich, Francis of Assisi, and lots of people who will go unnamed until I enter the real kingdom and meet them all for the first time. I wonder what advice you might give to someone who maybe isn't a part of a community of faith, doesn't really feel a sense of belonging to the church, maybe has some sort of personal faith, but feels a little disconnected. I wonder what advice you might give them or encouragement. Oh, well, try to find a smaller, reasonably healthy church. And I mean reasonably healthy, not healthy but at least one that's limping along, that's got some form of, 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 uh, of, of health to it. So gospel faithfulness, yeah. they're not following the latest cultural fad, but they're really committed to the uh, centrality of Jesus as the son of God and savior of the world. Uh, some notion of triune faith. Um, they believe in the Bible and they want the Bible to be the book for the church. Uh, there's some some diversity of demographic, old to young, for example. And they're trying to live out faith together as a community of people. Mm -hmm. And there are churches like that, Lauren. In every city, there are churches like that. You got to hunt a little bit. You've got to be a little tolerant and look for little sprouts of of health and not a full-grown tree of health. Once in a while, you'll have a church like that. Most of the time you have to have eyes um, that are a little bit more discerning, you know. Uh, that would be one piece of advice. And then find a few people and figure out how to do life together in that church. Yeah. Belong to that smaller community. And then belong, about, smaller that, community within the, larger, the smaller yes. community of the church, which is part of the universal church universal through church. time and space. Mm-hmm. Jerry, I have one question left for you. This is a question we ask every guest. What is an experience you've had where the church felt like it was where you belong? Well, I've had several of those. I mean, uh, it reflects my age. I'm 72 now, so I've had a lot of experiences with the church. Uh, uh, There are several. I would say probably the one that comes to mind right away is how the church functioned for me after I lost wife, Mm -hmm. my mother and daughter in a car accident. Uh, I just found a lot of goodness there. Two things come to mind. Uh, one was the Eucharist. I found in that moment that my food for faith was the Eucharist. It's mm-hmm. the one thing I could do where I had nothing I could do. 
I mean, think so about that for a minute. Yeah. All I did was open my mouth and yeah. receive the food of God. That's all the faith I could muster. So just being in a community of people that was giving me the food of the kingdom when I could really do nothing else. Mm -hmm. I couldn't sing. I couldn't pray. I was just too broken. I think about so many people I know now that were broken. I realized, though, looking back in, in, uh, it, more in memory, there were a lot of people in that community that were sad for me. And for a while, they prayed. They were Christians for me. Yeah, I love that. They were they were the ones who prayed for yeah. me, not literally for me. They prayed on my behalf. Mm -hmm. Yes. So when they were praying for lots of other things, they were representing me with all those prayers. When you couldn't. And they sang for me and they believed for me. Mm -hmm. And now I'm in a position where I can do that for a lot of other people. That's so those are that that that, that the church mm -hmm. can carry us for a while, you know. It did me. I am so encouraged by Jerry's reminder that we belong to the worldwide historic Christian church. I think especially in our current cultural moment where we tend to feel isolated and alone and live very individualistic lives, I think Jerry's passion, his witness invites us to find a way to connect with the wider church. Maybe for you, that looks like connecting with a community of faith on the other side of the world. This is something that is increasingly accessible as an option for us with the internet, with social media, with recorded worship sessions. Um, this could be incorporating an age-old spiritual discipline. For me, something like the examine has been incredibly helpful. Or connecting with the worldwide church could mean deciding to apprentice yourself to a wise sage who lived at a different time in history than we do now. Um, someone like Julian of Norwich or Macrina the Younger. Macrina the Younger was a nun who was later canonized as a saint. She lived in 327 to 379. I actually asked Jerry if he had a prayer from someone at a different time in church history that he might suggest. And here are some words from Macrina that he sent over. I encourage you to listen to pray along with St. Macrina. O Lord, you have freed us from the fear of death. You have made the end of our life here into the beginning of true life for us. You give rest to our bodies for a time and sleep, and then you awaken them again with the sound of the last trumpet. Our earthly body formed by your hands, you consign and trust to the earth, and then once more you reclaim it, transfiguring it with immortality and grace, whatever in us is mortal or deformed. You have opened for us the way to resurrection and given to those that fear you the sign of the Holy Cross as their emblem to destroy the enemy and save our life. Eternal God, on you have I depended from my mother's womb you have I loved with all the strength of my soul. To you I have dedicated my flesh and my soul from my youth until now. Set by my side an angel of light to guide me to the place of repose where are the waters of rest among the Holy Fathers. 
If you're feeling a bit isolated or longing to belong to a community of faith, whether you feel like you're on the outside, on the inside, or a ministry leader, I hope you will find encouragement in the reality that you belong to the body of Christ as it spans years, decades, millennia, geographical location, similar contexts, different contexts, similar challenges, and different challenges. We encourage you to share this episode if it was helpful for you, like it, subscribe to it, share your comments. You can join in the conversation as well over at our Instagram, which is at OCE Whitworth, or you can always find us online at whitworth.edu. Join us again next week as we dive further into where it is that we truly belong. See you soon.